Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. So we are finishing up a series today on kind, (laughs) on thankful kindness. And what is thankful kindness? Well, thankful kindness is a kindness that is always thankful for everything and in all situations. It is a kindness that Paul talks about often in his letters to the early church. And if you've noticed, we've been going through Paul's letters uh, this month. And we are closing out with a letter to a church in Colossae, which is actually in modern-day Turkey. If you were to look on a map, uh, an ancient map of Turkey, you'd find Colossae toward the southwestern part, uh, not all the way to the sea, but more landlocked. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is, is Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. This is what we call Colossians in the New Testament. And we're going to be reading from chapter 1. And there's something very interesting about the beginning of Paul's letters. You'll find today as we begin to read chapter 1, there's a redundancy that Paul puts in his greetings for each of the churches. Uh, And though they are somewhat nuanced and slightly different per letter, we notice today there's a lot of similarities that we'll point out and talk about here in just a moment. In an article from Newsweek magazine, uh, December the 27th, 1993, the year I graduated from high school, hey, don't you give me sass, sassy pants. Um... Norway's Lillehammer Olympic Organizing Committee, they faced a problem. Now, think of Norway. I'm sure it's a beautiful country. I'd love to go there someday. I'd love to see the northern lights. I hear they're beautiful there. It's very cold. It is very north. Not as north as, well, actually more north than PA, but sometimes PA feels more north, doesn't it? Yeah. But they faced a problem there in Norway, their organizing committee for the Olympics. Here's what the organizing committee faced. How to get Scandinavians to look happy and welcoming at the February Winter Games that were coming up that next year, 1994. That's not a joke. This is serious. It was in Newsweek. This is where this article was found. Their solution, it was somewhat tongue-in-cheek, But they had a solution to the problem. They called it the smile, and I'm going to butcher the name of this. It's a boil, B-O-E-Y-L-E, boil. In English, it means the smiling hoop. It's a rubber band with plastic hooks that wrap behind the head and attach to the corners of the mouth, forcing a grin, okay? That was what they were going to do. The article continues, the Olympic Organizing Committee of Norway will distribute, according to this article, 100,000 of them as a part of its $120,000 Smile, You're a Tourist Attraction campaign. Though the device was meant in jest, the word of it leaked, uh, when word of it leaked, the LOOC was bombarded with complaints, says the group, uh, the group's uh, leader, uh, 
Toral Seaberg, they were taking it too seriously. <laughs> so why is it that joy comes harder for some of us than others? You could say it was the way I was raised. You could say it's the country I grew up in. You could say it's the family I grew up in. It could be any number of reasons, but you lack the joy necessary to even force a smile out of the face. You've heard it said before, it takes more muscles to frown than it does to smile. Why is that? Because I think God created us not for sadness, but for joy. And if it takes less muscles to smile than to frown, we should see more smiles than frowns. How many of you agree that we as a people, I'm not just talking about North Maine, but we as a people take ourselves way too seriously? Amen. Okay? You cannot go onto social media and not see that people do not take themselves lightly. Nor do they take others lightly. How many of you have gone on social media lately and you've seen attacks and fights and infighting and undercutting and all of this stuff, all because we take things way too seriously? Well, here's the thing. There are some things we should take seriously, but way too many things in this world we take seriously that should never even be given a second thought. Would you agree with that? The problem with the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, we call him Satan, the devil, or any number of names in Scripture, the problem is we give in to the tactics of that enemy to get distracted and focus on things that have no eternal value. The things as a believer in Christ that should incense us are those things that are of eternal value and worth. How many things do you get angry at or angry about that have eternal worth? How many things do you get angry at that you'll forget about next week or a month from now? As a church, not just North Maine, but as a church globally, the church should take seriously what God takes seriously and should leave the rest alone. And how do you know what God takes seriously? God takes seriously those things he says he takes seriously. Well, where can I find that information, Brandon? I don't know. Maybe the Bible. The Bible doesn't have every answer, but it has enough answers for us to live a life by. And actually, we are told that if, if, if we were to have written everything about Christ and God, the there are, there are, the amount of volumes that that would take up would fill the world and then some. There was not enough paper to fill the volumes to contain the majesty, the might, and the power of Almighty God. So why do we take things too seriously? We take things too seriously because we get caught in this trap of deception, of confusion. Who was the author of deception and confusion? It's not God. You know, I hear oftentimes as a pastor and over my 24, 25 years in ministry that Brandon, I don't know what God wants. I'm so confused. Well, if you're confused, you're not hearing answers from God. Confusion does not lie with God. The answers to life lie with God. And the answers to life lie in his word. The written word we call the Bible and the living word we call Christ. Well, where do I learn about Jesus? Well, there are four 
written books of the New Testament called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And here's what I know. When I read those books, I get a picture of a man by the name of Jesus who lives a life that we should be living, who lives a life of joy. He finds joy in so much. Now, he does get angry. He does get disappointed. He does get frustrated at times. But those things he gets angry, frustrated, and disappointed with are things that have eternal value and that are distractors of those eternal things. Do you remember one time Jesus is in the temple? And do you know what he does? He gets really angry. Do you remember why he got angry? Money changers, the merchants, they were in the court of the Gentiles, and they had made that into a bazaar. And I'm not saying, wow, that's bizarre. If you think in old terms, or if you go to countries today, they actually still have bazaars, which are open courtyards where you have people selling so many different things and items, and they're bartering and back and forth. It is a very noisy place. Now figure yourself in the temple, the most outer court of the temple, which is a place of prayer and worship. Worship to Almighty God. It's called the Court of the Gentiles. What is going on there? The Gentiles that have believed in the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Israelites, the Hebrew people, that is the only place they are allowed to go to worship God, the God of the Bible. Now imagine you come to church on a Sunday morning. And we have people setting booths up inside of this room. They're selling different articles and things. Of course, it's for the temple. You can buy your sacrifice over there. Because I brought my sacrifice, but they found a blemish on it, so I've got to go buy a sacrifice from that booth. And then, of course, I've got to give a temple tax because uh, that's a part of being a Jew. I've got to give a tax to the temple for certain just things for the upkeep of the temple and the Levitical priesthood. And so I'm going to go to this place over here to get my money changed from Roman currency or whatever currency into the, the Hebrew currency for the temple tax. And I'm going to go over here to get this thing and that thing because I have to have it for temple worship. But it's set up here in the place where we should pray and worship the Almighty God as the people of God. And so Jesus gets angry. Of course he gets angry. Do you remember his words of rebuke? My house, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of liar, or mer- or liars and thieves. <laughs> Come on. But I see more often than anger, joy. I see Jesus teaching the disciples from a heart of joy, showing them a life of joy, showing them a pursuit of something that is bigger than themselves, God Almighty. And the pursuit of God Almighty, yes, is a pursuit of reverence, but is a pursuit of joy and kindness and everything they should be thankful about. So that's what we're going to talk about today, joyful thanksgiving. What does it mean to be joyful and thankful? So we looked at Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 3 because you get the first two verses, which are who the letter's written to. Read those for yourself. We're going to get into the actual greeting, though, of Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. Verse 3, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. He writes, we always pray for you. You notice he says we. 
Guess where Paul's writing from? Prison. He's writing from prison in Ephesus, more than likely, according to scholars. And this is before he writes from prison in Rome. In Rome, he's on house arrest, which is a little bit nicer. It's those who, in our day and age, would have the ankle bracelets who are able to go home, and then as long as they go to the probation officer, they can go to different places, but then they have to be back by a certain time. That's house arrest today. But house arrest in, in Rome, where Paul was before he was executed, was a little bit freer than he was in Ephesus. So he is writing now from prison to Colossae, from Ephesus, in chains. This is more dungeon-esque, if you will. But he says, we. Remember last week I told you he had friends who would come and bring him things, parchments, food, clothing, because you couldn't subsist on what the prison would give you there. Because prisons, unlike today, in those days, you relied on the, on the gratefulness of those outside that you knew to bring you stuff so that you could survive. We always pray for you. We and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have, you've had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. This same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the first day you heard, uh, from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. In verse 7, he goes on to write, You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker, he is Christ's faithful servant, and he is helping us on your behalf. He has also told us about the love, about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. So who is Epaphras? Epaphras, more than likely, is the one who planted the church at Colossae. This is not a church that Paul planted because he was in prison, but Epaphras, who had been impressed upon by the teachings of Paul, who converted to Christianity, then takes what Paul had given through the good news and takes that message back to Colossae and more than likely plants the church at Colossae there. So now Epaphras, who is also a partner in the gospel of Jesus Christ with Paul, is going back and forth from Ephesus to Colossae, because Ephesus is also in Turkey. They're, they're separated by several miles, but it's not too much of a journey for Epaphras to make, so to take him food and to take Paul different items that he would need. And so while he's there visiting with Paul, he says, listen, I'm going to tell you about the church at Colossae. They're doing great, doing really good. Now, they've got issues, as every church has issues, but they're doing really good with this thing called love, Christian love, godly love. So Paul goes on to write, so we have not stopped praying for you ever since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you, now here's where it starts to get redundant, because you remember the last two messages to Ephesus and Philippi, these same instructions and words come. We have not stopped praying for you ever since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you what? Spiritual wisdom, the same words. Spiritual wisdom. Numa Sophia, spiritual wisdom. 
and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every good fruit. Do you see what he says? If you have spiritual wisdom and understanding, then the way, it's an, if, you know, if you do this, if you have spiritual wisdom and understanding, then you will please the Lord. Paul prays this for multiple churches he has influence over and the letters he writes. Why does he keep praying for spiritual wisdom and understanding to come to the people he's writing to? What does ignorance do to a people? If a people continue to live in ignorance, what do they produce? Ignorance. <laughs> But if you live with spiritual wisdom and understanding, what do you produce? He's telling us. You produce fruit. What kind of fruit? Well, if we read the letter to the, or to the Galatians, when we get to Galatians chapter 5, we read the fruit that Paul is talking about is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are good things. He goes on to say in Galatians chapter 5 that there is no law against that kind of stuff. If you are producing this kind of fruit, that kind of fruit can only come from spiritual wisdom and understanding. But not just any spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's not spiritual wisdom of the Hindus or the Buddhists or any other group of people. It is spiritual wisdom that can only come as rooted in God. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now why is it important to have spiritual wisdom and understanding? Because ignorance is definitely not bliss. Ignorance is the quickest road to hell. But we live in a society and in a culture that is swimming in ignorance. And I don't mean that in a derogatory, hateful, or mean way, but you cannot turn on the TV, you cannot turn on your phone, you cannot turn on any device and watch anything in our culture today that doesn't point toward blatant ignorance. We are swimming in ignorance in our culture because we lack spiritual wisdom and understanding. And I dare say that our church, many of our churches are swimming in that too. Do you remember some of the statistics I gave you last week? Remember a biblical worldview? And they're really basic. They're based on eight core fundamentals. Do you believe Jesus lived a sinless life? Do you believe there is a Satan? Do you believe that there is absolute moral truth? Do you believe that absolute moral truth is rooted in the word of God? I mean, these are basic concepts. There's eight of these that are really basic. It doesn't take a brain surgeon or an astrophysicist to figure this out. You don't even have to be a biblical scholar to figure this out. And 41% of all senior and lead pastors in our nation, hold a biblical worldview, which means nearly 60% of all pastors that stand on a stage much like this do not preach or teach a biblical worldview. Why are our churches in such horrible condition? Why do churches close their doors every month? It's because they're not teaching the Word of God. They're not teaching how to learn spiritual wisdom and understanding of the Word of God. 
Do you know what Paul talks about? Every entrance to every letter that Paul writes talks about the good news, the good news, the good news, the good news. What is the good news? Well, it's called the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? It is the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what they're talking about. Well, what is the good news of Jesus Christ? Again, it's the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Who is Jesus? Why did he come to earth? What did he do? How did he live? How did he love? What were the things that made him upset? What was the end of his life like? And why does it make any difference? It's the good news that brings us life everlasting. Then the, verse 10, the way you live will always honor and please the Lord and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. Do you hear anything anywhere in the Bible about once you get saved, that's all that matters? I was, I was kind of, I, I don't know that I was necessarily taught that growing up in the church that I grew up in, but that's what came across. Salvation is the only thing that matters. Salvation is the only thing that matters. Salvation is extremely important, but it's the beginning of a process, not the end. Salvation is not the end-all, be-all. Salvation is the starting point. The end of life is the ending point for this life, if you will. But it's also the beginning of eternity. But I say the beginning of eternity starts when you receive Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. We call it salvation. That is the starting point, the beginning point for eternity. But many of us don't live like we're living for eternity. Many of us live like we're living for the moment. Actually, many of us live like we're living in the past. Because the past has such a stranglehold on us, we've never let it go. So even when we've come to Christ, we don't believe that he's the one who could truly set people free from sin and death. And so we still have sins that have a stranglehold on us because we can't forgive ourselves even though God can. Do you see the problem there? And when you are rooted in the past, you cannot produce fruit for the present or the future of any substance or value. Because your roots are poisoned. This is why Paul talks in Corinthians about dying to self. That we actually die and become what? New creations. You have to become a new creation in order to produce that kind of fruit. You cannot live in the past. But many of us who come to Christ continue to live with the shadow of this that seemingly defines us when Christ is the one who should define us. He goes on to say, we also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power so that, so you will have all the endurance and the patience you need. How many of you need extra endurance and patience? I mean, I do. <laughs> How many of you at home are driving right now Please don't look at the screen. I mean, I'm sure you're just listening to this. How many of you need extra patience? I know I do. Sometimes there are some days I need more patience than others. May you be filled with joy. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. Again, where's he writing from? He's writing from prison, not house prison, 
from chains. Have you ever tried to instruct somebody to do something that you yourself weren't doing? How well does that go? It doesn't go great, does it? You can, you, you can tell people to do. It's, <laughs> how many of you parents have said, don't do what I do, do what I say? How well does that go over with your kid? If they see you living a life that, you, that they're trying to instruct you not to live, your actions are going to speak a lot louder than the words you speak. We call this integrity, right? If we're living lives of integrity, we're living lives that are rooted in Christ so that what we do in private is also what we do in public. Always thank the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who has purchased our freedom and who forgave our sins. Sheldon Vanakin quoted in Chuck Colson's book, The Body, he says, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. It's not the Bible. It's not anything else. The best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug and complacent cons- uh, consecration, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. Here's the key point this morning. We can express thanksgiving to God with joy, knowing that our living for him is not in vain. No matter what you're going through, the circumstances that you're facing right now, if you face them with joy, unspeakable and full of glory, and when you face them with the thankfulness that can only come through the Holy Spirit in you and through you, then you can face anything, no matter how dark the night may get or how difficult the situation truly is, because you have Christ in you you and through you. See, this is what I believe David was talking about in Psalm 23 when he is running for his life from Saul who is trying to murder him. For nearly 10 years of David's life, he is running from Saul while Saul sits on the throne in Jerusalem over Israel. David has now been anointed king While another king sits on the throne, it incenses Saul with so much frustration and jealousy that he wants to murder David. And so for 10 years, he's running for his life, living in caves, living in the wilderness with the men that have decided to pledge their loyalty to David. And so he pens this psalm that we often use at funerals. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need, or I shall not want if you're a King James purist. But then he goes down through there and he says, even when I walk through where? The valley of the shadow of death. Now think about where he said he's in the wilderness. If you know anything about the wilderness of the Middle East, there are all these mountainous regions. Now they're not huge like Mount Everest, but they're still mountains nonetheless. And they are dry, they are often barren, they may have scrub bushes growing on the sides of them. But there are these things called valley, or what are called valleys there are called wadis. 
W-A-D-I. What is a wadi? Well, they have a rainy season. And in the rainy season, when the water comes off the mountains and these huge sheets of water coming down, they go down these wadis and form rivers and narrow basins all the way down to either the Jordan River or the sea. I can imagine David sitting on one of the cliffs or the hillsides there looking at this barren wadi during the dry season. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow as the sun is setting and the the mountaintops are casting a shadow over the wadi. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death because it looks dead out there in this barren wilderness. And I'm running for my life from a guy who wants me dead. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I'm still going to have joy, and I will not have fear, because I know, God, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they actually bring me comfort because I know you are my good shepherd. And as your sheep, you are not going to lead me into anything that will destroy me. Even if I'm going through one of these wadis, I know there's going to be grasslands on the other side so that I can lay down in green pastures. I can drink from cool streams of water. So I will worry about nothing, I will fear nothing, and I will live in the joy and the peace of the life you give as the good shepherd. That's what he's talking about. That's why I can have joy no matter the valley, no matter the circumstance, no matter what is happening in any given moment in my life, I will keep my head high, not in arrogance, but fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of my faith. So what do we see with Paul's prayer? He's praying for complete knowledge of God's will. How many of you struggle to know God's will? It's okay, because I struggle with it too. I struggle to know God's will at times. God, what is your will? What do you want? How do you want me to live? Well, I know how he wants me to live, but where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do in any given moment? I know the quickest way, the quickest way to be in disobedience is to do nothing. Unless you know, the Holy Spirit says, do nothing. There is an active way to do nothing. Did you know that? Because here's what I see with most Christians who don't understand God's will. Instead of continuing to seek God's will through his word to try to figure out how has he moved in the past with other people he also has called, how did they know God's will? Even when they were told to wait, they still remained active in the waiting. But I see a lot of Christians, a lot of believers in Christ who are in the waiting that are sitting doing nothing like bumps on a log. That's not what we've been called to do in the waiting. What we've been called to do in the waiting is what we call active waiting. I'm still going to be I'm still going to be fulfilling the commands and the teachings of God wherever I am until he calls me somewhere else. Until he moves me from here to there, I will continue to be obedient to him, to live out the love for him and the love for others that are the greatest commandments he told me to have that I should live by. I'm going to continue to not worry or to be anxious for, I'm not going to be anxious for anything because worry and anxiety don't add days to my life. Quite the contrary, scientifically it's proven that stress through worry and anxiety take time off of my life. So why would I worry about tomorrow? Tomorrow has enough worries of its own, doesn't it? 
But I'm going to be active in the waiting. Because if I'm not active in the waiting, that's when fear and worry do set in. Because here's what I do when I actively, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm worrying and I'm anxious, I'm sitting with my thoughts. Have you ever done that? How often do you sit with your thoughts? Way too often. Where do your thoughts often lead? <laughs> because we are, we are prone to a sinful nature, our thoughts often trail off into negative, negative things, negativity. Who is the author of all that is bad and wrong and evil and worrisome? <laughs> it's definitely not God. When I sit too long with my thoughts, I wander into territory that I shouldn't wander into. I wander into places where I should never go, even physically. But mentally, I go there. And then becomes the process of my downfall because then I allow worry and anxiety to gain a foothold in my life. And worry and anxiety, when it, when it becomes full-blown, can lead to not only inaction, but poor action or devastating action. Do you know what Paul is confronting at the church at Colossae? Because it also has come back as a report from Epaphras that false teaching has begun to enter that society. They are part of the Greco-Roman culture, many of them. Many of them Jews that have converted to, to, to Christianity. We call them Messianic Jews. Do you know what they started believing? Now, this is before Gnosticism really took hold. This is called proto-Gnosticism. I want you to hear what some of the teachings that were entering the Colossian church and many churches like it in the early first century started to believe. They started to believe that spirit is good and matter is evil. You've heard me talk about this before. And it comes from uh, philosophies like Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. Plato really popularized this theory through his philosophies in the Greek culture around the second or third centuries BC. But here's what he did is he said anything that is physical, that you could taste, touch, hear, feel, anything that is physical is evil. Well, what does that mean about I'm physical? So the physical matter that makes me up is what? Evil. But that which is spiritual is good and holy and perfect. Now, if that teaching was entering into the church, what links would that go? Ah, that's exactly right. Jesus. Who was Jesus? Jesus was fully man, but he was also fully God. Do you, and you'll see hints of this throughout the whole New Testament, through Paul's writings, the pastoral epistles, even in the book of Revelation. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was born of a virgin. He had a physical mother, but a spiritual father. How can you be 100% one thing and 100% another? Doesn't, doesn't that make 200%? That doesn't factor out. This is what we call a paradox, and it's not a cop-out answer. The reality is God became a man. Read Philippians chapter 2. It was read last week by Angela on the stage. Jesus, who being in the very form God, 
did not consider equality with God as something to cling to or hold on to, but instead emptied himself to take on human flesh. He basically enslaved himself, Paul is talking about, to a physical body. This goes in the face of this idea of Gnosticism, that all spirit is good and all matter is evil. Because if Jesus truly was a human, according to Gnosticism or proto-Gnosticism, he could not have been truly physical, made of matter, skin, bone, sinews, and flesh. Because he would be evil and imperfect. And only that which is spiritual is perfect. So God, if there is one, has to be complete spirit. And yes, that is a true statement. But does that mean that God cannot take on human flesh? Well, we believe that in Jesus Christ he did. We believe in the teachings of the New Testament that prove out that he was. That he actually died a physical death. Because spirit cannot die. But flesh can. So what happened on the cross? Well, those that promoted this false ideology of this false teaching said that it only looked like he died because truly being God, he could not die. Then what does that say about his resurrection? Well, he didn't truly raise from the grave because he didn't truly die. Do you see what happens to the gospel? But this was creeping into the churches. Guess what? Nothing's different. We think, oh, that's an old ancient theory and an old ancient teaching that entered the church. Do you believe false teaching still enters the church today? Now, you can tell me how you believe it enters the church. And we, it's just dressing up old teachings with newer ideology. There's an arrogance in our culture today, in the American culture, that believes all things ancient to be stupid because we are so now enlightened through technology and the sciences and advancements. You've got to trust the science, remember? Right? How ironic, though, that the one thing that has lasted the test of time has been the Word of God. And not because there are stupid people that believe it, but because there are enlightened people who have come to understand the truth of God's word. Science is constantly changing, but there is a God who doesn't. Science, and you know the James Webb, are you, how many of you are science geeks like me? Okay, I'm just speaking to a couple of you then. So the James Webb Telescope, it's now the new Hubble of our day and age. Do you know what they're finding out? Some of our theories have been wrong. Some of our theories about the universe, and they don't like to admit it because I'm reading articles now where they're like squirming a little bit in scientific discovery with the new James Webb telescope that we thought we'd figured out with Hubble, but now we can see further into space and we can see that some of the theories we proposed don't quite play out. I'm still going to believe it, though. I'm not joking. If you could unequivocally prove to me that God does not exist, the God of the Bible, and that Jesus was not the Messiah, God in the flesh, 
I would be willing to listen to your theory. I listened to a million theories. I read more than my share of the Quran and the Book of Mormon and the Bhagavad Gita, which is a part of the Hindu spiritual teachings. But they all come up somewhat empty. They may hold pieces of truth, but I want the whole truth. And the one that I have tested myself because I don't want to believe a lie has proven to be true time and time. And when I argue on the basis of its own arguments, I find the scripture to be verifiable. I just can't argue with it. And then there are so many others that are more smart and more brilliant than I am that have done that and come to the same conclusion even when they were ardently opposed to it. But what does he go on to talk about? Spiritual wisdom and understanding. I don't want to belabor the point too much, but listen to this. Robert Hughes, a biblical author and scholar, uh, writes, Paul's response to the problem of false teaching in the Colossian church stressed Christ as the creator and head over the church. See, the source of all wisdom and knowledge, the fullness of the deity and head over all authority, and the only source of hope for future resurrection and glory of humankind is Jesus. All believers who are Christ's body are connected to Christ, who is the head of the church. I see a lot of churches in name only. I see a lot of churches that are headless today. And I'm talking about local. I'm not talking about the church, church universal. Because God always has maintained a faithful remnant of believers in the Old and the New Testament. There. There are a lot of headless churches. And what is, if I cut the head off an animal, you're going to say, well, there's some animals that can exist without a head. Not forever. Actually, there's that one headless chicken. Did you see that where he fed through an eyedropper? Sorry, I digress. I'm not, sorry, look it up. It, it exists, or it did exist, it died. Anyway. Think about this with me. Process this with me for a minute. The human. Can a human live without its head? I mean, only in fantasy, the headless horseman, you know. These are not real characters. Nearly headless Nick. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. The reality is we can't live without a head. So what does Paul say when he refers to the body of Christ like a living human being with Christ as the head? If Christ is the head, then what happens when you take the head from its normal place? How many churches have you seen that are headless? It's a painful reality of our day and age, but it was a painful reality in Paul's day and age too, which is why he was reiterating this to the church at Colossae. The Christ is the head over all, that Christ is the head over all authority. Christ's body, the church, all believers are connected to Christ who is the head. They are to seek after heavenly things 
put on a new self and let the word of Christ dwell in them richly. The third thing is that Paul prays for is that they are strengthened with God's glorious power to have all endurance and patience they need. Do you know the word power he talks about here is the root word for our word dynamite? It's called dunamis. It's a Greek word for power. But this, there, there are two different words for power in the Greek language. Dunamis is a controlled power. Okay? It is a power under control. Okay? What do I have when I have power that's not under control? Huh? Chaos. Chaos. I have something that is extremely destructive. Now, I can take a stick of dynamite and throw it at random and, com- and, and, and cause utter chaos. But I could also take a stick of dynamite and multiple sticks of dynamite and place them properly in the right place on a building that I'm trying to tear down. And if I do it properly and under control, I can bring the building down in the way it should come down so it doesn't cause more chaos or destruction. Or if you've ever gone to a rock quarry, they use dynamite. It's controlled to take off the face of the rock so that they can make gravel and other things from it. Dunamis, the kind of power that Paul is talking about here is a power under control. And when God's power is under control in our own lives and holds us under control, we can endure anything. We can be patient knowing that it's temporary. And that no matter what we go through, Good can come out of it. Talked about that this morning in the class I was teaching. Do you know the passage in Romans chapter 8 where Paul says, no momento, where Paul says, God works all things together for good. And that's all he says, right? And we love to leave it there. Do you know how many churches leave it there? Hey, God works all things together for good. That's not what it says. Because it's a conditional statement. Conditional statements we don't like, especially in our culture. Conditional statements are exclusive, and we are nothing if we're not inclusive. Watch out. (laughs) God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And are called according to his good purposes. God doesn't work all things out for everybody at all times. It says in that statement, Paul writes this letter too to the Romans. He works all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his good purpose. I want to be in that quadrant. I want to be in that space with him. And I'm going to trust that no matter what I'm going through, even if it looks ugly in the moment, that with patience and endurance, with Christ in me and the Holy Spirit equipping me with the power I need, I can get through this. Not by my own power and strength, but by his power and strength through me. This is what Paul is praying for for the 
Colossian church is that you don't go in and of your own strength and power to do what you think you need to do, but you reserve yourself for the purpose of submitting to Christ so that his power in you and through you can take you through a raging sea unscathed. Lastly, be filled with joy always, thanking the Father. Go back. What's he say here? Colossians 1, 11 through 14. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to, God's peop- or belongs to his people who live in the light. Do you see this? Why can we be filled with joy and thank the Father in all circumstances? Why? Why? Because he's enabled us to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people. What is the inheritance that belongs to his people? Anybody give a thought? Have a thought? Eternal life. <laughs> Do you know why I have people push back on me on that point? You've heard me say this before. Well, what am I going to do for eternity? It's going to get boring. You have a poor concept of the God of heaven. Your God is way too small. If you think that for eternity you will get bored with an infinite God. If, a God of, if the God of heaven is infinite and all-powerful, what makes you think eternity is going to be boring? Well, I don't want to sit around on a cloud playing a harp. You watch too many movies. <laughs> you see too many pictures from the Renaissance period with these little babies in diapers playing a harp. Do you know those cherubs? Yeah. Uh, those cherubs that, are, that look like little babies, you know what a cherubim is? A mighty warrior soldier with a sword that stands huge when they are seen. Why do you think when they appear on the scene, people crap their pants? <laughs> Fear not, he says, or they say. Not, not because a baby in a diaper with a bow and arrow. This theology is all crazy because we've adapted Hollywood and all this other junk into our theology when theology should be actually informing these other things. I'm sorry for the crude language. Be filled with joy always. Be filled with joy and always thank the Father. Biblical scholar and author N.T. Wright, one of my favorite authors, writes this. He, see, he explains that the climax of Paul's prayer is that the young Christians at the church at Colossae will learn the art of thanksgiving. It is an art form. Did you know that? How many of you enjoyed Thanksgiving meal without any arguments around the table? Okay, some of you did. How many of you, when you get together with families, you have to bite your tongue you know, because you got the crazy uncle or the crazy aunt, and you got, you know, <laughs> how many of you have to go into that before you step through the threshold of the door, taking a few deep breaths, because you know there's going to be tension and it's going to be a warlike environment, but let's keep the peace because we're in a neutral zone right now. That's Switzerland, right? Why do we have to learn the art of thanksgiving? Because it doesn't come naturally in a world that is not very thankful. But believers in Christ should be different. That's what Paul's talking about. You should be different. We should be different. 
The reason we should be thankful is because we have an inheritance, and that inheritance is eternal, and the eternal life we live is not boring. As a matter of fact, it is the most perfect thing, the most great thing we could ever imagine, and beyond that. So we can be thankful no matter what the circumstance is. He goes on to say, he will in fact mention this over and over again, Paul will, in his in his letters, it is the central theme of the letter of Colossians, to be thankful. What Paul most wants to see growing in the church is a sign of healthy Christian life on the way to maturity is gratitude to God for the extraordinary things that he has done in Christ Jesus and the remarkable things he is continuing to do in the world and in their lives. Wright goes on to to explain, spontaneous gratitude of this kind is a sign that they are coming to know and love the true God, as opposed to some imaginary God out there. God's, God's that people can invent can't compare with the true God when it comes to an overflowing generosity. Paul would say to us if he were here, as he said to the young Christians at Colossae, that a life lived in the presence of God will be a life full of thanksgiving. There are too many Christians I meet that are not thankful, and I have to admit, I've not been always thankful. I can grovel, I can complain with the rest of them, and with the best of them, or worst of them, depending on how you look at it. I can get a burr in my saddle and tell everybody about it. Instead of just getting that burr out and throwing it by the wayside, I like to tell people, I got a burr in my saddle and I'm going to sit on it and it's going to make me uncomfortable and you're going to know about it. How many of you do that? Right? Oh, let me tell you. Can you believe? Well, I never... Of course, none of us do that. I, I, I don't. <laughs> Ask the staff that I work with on a daily basis. Dave, do I ever complain? Liar, liar, pants on fire. Now, I like to tell people when I got a burr in my saddle, instead of getting off that stupid high horse and taking the burr out, dealing with it and moving beyond it and being thankful for what I have and not frustrated about what I don't have or what somebody said to me or any number of things, I am in control of that burr. Nobody else is. But I like to sit on it, and I like to get angry about it, but I'm not willing to do anything about it. As our worship team comes forward, how many burrs are in your saddle? So to speak. As a kid, uh, I lived on a lake called Lake Harrington in Kentucky. It was a lake that's about 35, 36 miles long at its widest point, maybe a couple hundred feet across. I learned to water ski and swim and do all different kinds of stupid things on that lake. But, I just dribbled. But, I have a hole in my lip. Um, I remember in addition to the lake, Across the road where I lived were these open farmland fields and woods, and I would love to go explore those woods. My mom doesn't know this. She might now. She's here with me this morning, so don't tell her I said this. But there was a cave in this field way, if you walked about a mile into the field, there's this open cave into the ground, and um, it's a wonder I didn't break a leg or die there and my rotting corpse still be there today. But uh, seriously, you do stupid stuff as a kid, right? 
But on the way to the cave and on the way back, or traversing through the woods, they had these, what do you call them here, actually, I remember from your old soon, they call them jaggers or something, or no, jaggers are thorns. What are the things that get on you when you walk through, birds, is that what you call them? Okay. So how many of you have ever gotten those? How many of you just leave them on there? Because they are meticulously woven into the, they, they like Velcro, but worse, they stick and you're like, I can't, oh, forget it. Many of us as believers in Christ are walking around with burrs. And we've given up because they're too hard to get off. But they sometimes come through the fabric and they're pricking our legs and oh, they're just irritating. Um... There is a God who loves you and wants to help you get off those birds that you walk through in life. Yeah, hey, you pick some stuff up along the way. Let me help you take care of that. Oh, I've tried. They're not coming out. And even if they were, it just it's going to take way too much time. How many of you have an attitude like that? Instead of being thankful that somebody has come to deal with the birds in your life, you're willing to live with them on yourself, causing you pain and a nuisance. There's somebody that came to deal with the birds. Actually, he took some in his wrists and his feet, in his side, on his head, on his back. He took every single bird he could ever take for humanity, and then some, to deal with the birds in your life. See, there are many people out there that want to take away our joy, our peace. They want to take away every good thing in our life. But there is one enemy who seeks to truly steal, kill, and destroy. And do you know that the power of God in you is enough to deal with the enemy who steal, kill, and destroy? The enemy can have no more power over you than you allow him to have. You may walk through burrs. You may walk through difficult thickets and difficult situations. You come out with scratches and bruises on you. But there is a one who was bruised and beaten for our transgressions. There was one who took the weight of sin upon his own shoulders because nobody else could truly bear it. And there's the one who walks through whatever valley of the shadow of death you're going through today or have gone through or will go through. But he desires to perfect you as you lean into him and find joy in the journey and thankfulness for all that he's done for you no matter how dark it may look. As you come into this holiday season on the first day of Advent, this Advent season, as we look to the birth of Christ, you know he didn't come in vain. He came to do something we could not do, but he did exactly what each of us have gone through, and that is become a newborn baby. God took a risk on you by becoming so vulnerable 
much more should we become vulnerable, get rid of the pride, get rid of the arrogance, and, and admit, I can't do this on my own. I'm tired of being bitter. I'm tired of being angry. I'm tired of being frustrated. I'm tired of sitting on these burrs or leaving them in clothing. He says he will give me a new garment. I want to trade this old garment for what he's willing to give me. And no, I'm probably not going to be able to do it perfectly, but because he did, I will follow in his way. Because it's him who perfects me, not me that perfects me. You can't do this without him. So will you give in to him today? Will you recommit to him today? Maybe your heart, your mind has been far from him. You've been a part of the church your whole life, but you become dull and joyless and thankless. Lift your head up. Receive him once again with a fresh infilling of his Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we welcome you into this place as we know you've already been here. Forgive us for doubting, for not trusting, for going our own way, for trying to figure things out on our own when you've already given us the answers to life. Forgive us for being stubborn and prideful when we should surrender all to you in humility. Forgive us for not letting you help us with the burrs and the stickers on our clothing and in our hearts. God, give us joy. I mean, you, you already do. Help us to receive the joy you give. Let me put it that way. And help us to be thankful in all circumstances because we know that the current circumstances we go through do not define us and are only temporary compared to eternity with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.